0: You're now the word of the Lord. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2, 6 through 10. Please be seated. And for those of you who might be asking, I pulled uh, I an audible. Uh, because really, uh, the heart of this sermon will be in verses uh, 6 and 7. But before we do anything... Let us go to the Lord God in prayer. Father God, our request is simple this Lord's day. Please bless us with a taste of heaven, a taste of the glory and grandeur of the Lord that we sing out to Hosanna, Hosanna, who is seated in the highest. Allow us, Lord, for a little while to be more heavenly minded. So that we can be more earthly good. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, both in the Wednesday children's study upstairs and also to a lesser extent on the Thursday night study, uh, pastorally, I've just been talking a lot about heaven this week. Uh, With the children upstairs, we reach this point in John and we like. Well, I like to go, and they, they follow, I guess, but we go verse by verse through the Bible, and, and uh, I reach this point where John is writing about heaven, he's, he's talking a little bit about heaven, and I said, is there any questions? And they're all quiet, because, you know, it's, it could be a, a nerve-wracking thing, I guess, to ask questions in public. And, and then I just, okay, I guess we're going to move on to the next verse. And they go, whoa, 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 wait, 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 no, we want, it. We want to talk about heaven. And so, okay, well will ask me questions. And they start asking questions, and then 50 minutes later, we're still talking about heaven. We have not advanced a single verse. Still wondering, still speculating, still looking forward to what is to come. What a joy it is to, to talk about heaven. I have a friend in pastoral ministry, and I'm going to give it his name at the beginning so my family doesn't go, who is that? Guy Williams. Um, and about four years ago, Guy Williams found out uh, with his mother that she was soon to pass. That she had a period of time of a couple months that they could spend together and talk together, but that she was soon to pass on from this life into the next. And they were both believers, and, and, and he, he would, it kind of came to this critical moment. What do, we, what do we fill that time with? What do we fill that discussion with? And what really started it, or the idea, the main topic that carried them through, is they decided to start talking about what there will be and what there won't be in heaven. And we often kind of think about that in a superficial way. We, you know, we know there's no tears, there's no pain, there's no death in heaven. But they really started to dig into this so much so that actually I think my, like, I think he's planning to write a book on it. It just carried them for weeks and weeks and weeks, talking about heaven, talking about the better reality of heaven, the better perspective that heaven gives us in this life, uh, even not and at the end of life, but also how heaven gave, gives his son better perspective as he's about to say goodbye to his mother. Heaven. That's what consumed them and talked about it. And it was such a sweet conversation that I remember him telling me that as he was there, as it was her time to go, as it was the last moments that he would spend with his mother in this mortal life, they both were just consumed with such joy, such complete joy and how that the weeks and months beforehand had just well prepared them for that moment. It often takes quite a bit for us to begin thinking about that heaven in our own lives and to think of God in that kind of way. Most of our lives tend to be so busy, so noisy, that in one sense we really fail to enjoy the sweetest promises of the Bible. We gulp down church on the way to the rest of our life. I especially remember this as a child. Church is just this terrible interruption to the rest of your weekend. It was a terrible interruption to all the things I really cared about. I just didn't let my parents know because they seemed to care a lot about this church thing. We often live as if Jesus interrupts our life rather than... He's he's got not only ultimate control over our heart, but He's got a wonderful plan for our heart. And yet this passage has in it, if we sit in a while and we really consider what it's saying, a sweeter way forward to a more intimate life with God. Now we'll begin in verse 6, but it is important to remember the, the, the verses that came before it. The Apostle Paul just told us how life-giving our God is, how He raises from the dead. Which by the way in itself is an odd thing to say. We get so used to saying that as a Christian, uh, but we forget how really weird it is. That we say we've already been raised from the dead. That the Apostle says you have already been raised from the dead. In an era where follow the science has become like the cliche buzzword. Where people make all sorts of arguments on all sides of the political world. We're an odd group of people as Christians. Because like the Apostle Paul demonstrates, we go around telling people. And we're told to go tell people that we've been raised from the dead. There's not a physician at Grandview Health that will make that claim if he were to evaluate my body here today. He's not going to come to the same conclusion, but we've been raised from the dead. Yet if somebody walked up to us in the energy station and said, hey, I was raised from the dead yesterday, you would think they were crazy. We just sort of forget how sensational such a claim is. And yet, this is a beautiful truth, because while all our physical bodies are going to break down one day, there is a sense in which the worst of it has already taken place. You've already died as a Christian in a greater sense, because Jesus first died for you. Often at the end of life, we want comfort care. We want those doctors and nurses to, to make sure that we don't feel any pain from the passing of one life to the next. And that's a great thing of modern medicine, a sweet mercy that... Often we can give that kind of pain uh, comfort. But the ICU doctor cannot give you comfort on the other side. Now that kind of comfort, that kind of ease is found in Christ alone. And that's an encouraging thing. Because without Him is not found any life, only death. Now in looking at verse 6 of chapter 2, it's helpful to know a little history about it before. Um, about the region of Ephesus. This was a part of the world at the time that was greatly superstitious. They, they were a culture of bad omens, bad spirits, almost, almost like what we think of with voodoo. They felt that at any moment, evil evil could come, rise up and sweep over them. And so part of the reason why the Apostle is being so um, grandiose in, in, in what he is saying about God and, and God's control is that it helps push back on some of those superstitions. And so Ephesus was a church ministry where Paul really needed to show them that they didn't have to get caught up in that kind of worry cycle. And while maybe we're far more rational people to believe in bad omens and superstition, or at least we like to think we are, unless, unless inclined to believe that we as a society are these days, we often also can worry about evil sweeping us away. We're giving the upper hand in our lives. That evil would just come in like a tidal wave. And yet, Paul mentions the perch that you and I sit on. And that perch that you and I sit on is in heaven itself. And it's meant to, to give us comfort and security and rest. There's a sense in which right now, even though you and I can't see it, see it we're already seated there's, there's a table in heaven. We already have a reservation. And so Paul is saying, why are you worrying so much? Why are you worrying? Because nobody on this perch has the power to be ripped down. You remember that childhood game of King of the Mountain? Now you, uh, it was a, game, a great game to create injuries, I remember. <laughs> You just like are ripping people off of beds and all sorts of things—violence and mayhem. I, I think, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you girls didn't play that game. I remember loving that game. You just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a reason for a brawl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kathy, I believe you loved kicking about. I do, and I believe you won. Uh, anyways, but, but uh, there's a sense in which Paul is saying. You can't be ripped down from this mountain. You can't be torn down from this mountain. Take courage in that path. No one can take it from you. I remember last year when the, that big flood uh, came upon the Perkiomen, Bruce and I were out driving together and we're beginning to descend down to this hill, and, and right in front of us, we saw a minivan swimming in the Perkiomen. Now, if you don't know this, minivans aren't really supposed to swim in the Perkiomen. But we saw this minivan swimming in the Perkiomen, and so stopped the car on the side of the hill. And we both got out, and uh, we wanted to make sure nobody was in the car that was swimming in the Perkiomen, and uh, nobody was. Fortunately, they had left their car before it went for a swim. But we saw a gentleman on the side looking at the minivan, kind of forlorn, and so we gave him a ride home. Our, our vantage point helped us find the individual who was looking uh, with sadness at his swimming minivan that wasn't going to stop swimming for any hour soon and allowed us to give, us, give him a ride home. Now one thing about this perch, and I, I use that illustration to hopefully connect the point I'm about to make. One thing about this perch is there's no biblical promise that you won't be caught up in floods. That you won't experience those kinds of things in life. That bad things won't happen. That the dips won't happen. But there is a promise that if you have this vantage point, if you have this perch as a believer, you're going to be able to uniquely look out on the things that happen. It's not that the Christian doesn't drive on the same dips and hills and valleys of life. That's not what Paul's saying. But at the end of the day, we have this blessing of a heavenly perch that protects us from certain things that we can climb to in order to find peace from the storm waters. No one can take that away from us because Christ holds on to it. Certain worries we no longer need to have, but even more than that, as we continue on in verse 7, God has some incredible things planned for us. And those plans for us can't be taken away either. One of the things I love about verse 7 is that it gives this hint of heaven we've been talking about. And it says something we don't often think about when it comes to heaven. We don't usually, I didn't use this in the 50 minutes uh, of talking with the kids. But heaven, in heaven, God's going to overwhelm us with His kindness. His kindness. That's going to be kind to us. Oh, how the world could use more kindness in our day? And even more than that, a, a proper understanding of what biblical kindness is. We often fool ourselves into thinking kindness is just being pleasant or maybe cracking a smile here or there, or letting someone cut in on the road, etc. We say that word, but we don't really know how to define it. Or how the Bible defines it. So let's let's begin shifting our minds about that word kindness. Be kind, biblically speaking, is linked to tenderness. And so I'm going to apologize to the vegetarians in the crowd. Those, uh, those who don't like the ear season, these sorts of things. But I'm I'm going, they will rename nameless, right, Karen? Yes. Yes. <laughs> they will rename, remain nameless. But I'm going to use a steak. So for some of us, picture a vegetable instead. But when it comes to a steak, a good steak, yes, it needs to be properly seasoned. It needs all these things. But really, a good steak, in my opinion, is made by, by still being tender. There's a tenderness to it. When none of us want to cut into a piece of leather, an overcooked like piece of almost beef jerky, there's something about being able to quickly get to the food itself. We don't want to exercise brute force. And biblical kindness is linked to the idea of tenderness. A tenderness that is easy to get a hold of. And it's easy to get a hold of because as these first two chapters have been telling us, God just graciously gives this stuff to us. Because God tenderly and kindly first grabbed a hold of us. In one sense, as we read even in... Verse 10, about the prepared works that he has desired for us to do, it's like he's even cut each bite and prepared us to to eat. We used to love going to a steak place in Las Vegas that for the kids' menu, if you ordered a kids' steak, they would cut each piece so we didn't have to as a parent. It was was wonderful. It, It was worth the surcharge. There were cheaper steak places, but it was wonderful. That's what God does for us. God says, trust me, child, I know your worry, I know your fear, but I'm always going to be kind to you. I'm always going to be tenderly available to you in the dips, in the mountaintops, and elsewhere. In the difficult moments, and also the moments of sheer joy, I'll be celebrating right alongside of you. However, I know what some of you are saying in your mind, because I tend to say it in my mind as well. How can you say that, Pastor, that God's always tenderly available to me? And he's not hard to find. Because I have these periods of my life where I just don't sense the power of God. But let's be honest. It's because we live our lives where we so often cut into the wrong kind of things. Things that make us tough. Things that don't make us tender. For spiritual growth. We have web browser histories and TV programs and bake statements and activities and social media accounts and alike that betray the God-granted gift of becoming tender and kind through the power of God. There are a great variety of idols of our hearts that rob us and don't build us up in tenderness, but build us up in a tough manner where we can't get... People can't get through, and we can't get through to others. And yet God has prepared us for good works, as we see in verse 10, that we should walk in them. He has a tender path for us. And we only have ourselves to blame if we can't find that tenderness, if we are experiencing toughness in this person and work of God. There are incredible things He desires to do for us, and will be gracious with us, and yet we so often resist Him. Continuing on in cycles that are self-serving and self-focused and selfishly motivated, we become tough to the greater works that he desires we boldly seek to do. And imagine how awful it would have been had God had such a self-serving heart himself, that he wasn't first kind to us. Because what advantage was it to him to save us? Where would we be then if he had such things? We certainly wouldn't be saved. There was no advantage for him to suffer and to sacrifice for us in such a way. And yet, God desired to be kind to us, tenderly and easily ready to be available for us. Because that's who he is. He's loving. He's gracious. He's good. And that leads into another point about kindness, or maybe better yet, a problem about kindness. We can think we are kind. Because we have some people in our lives we are tender to, we are kind to. You know the list, family, friends, those who maybe line up with you politically, religiously, spiritually. The kinds of people who always come to the same kinds of conclusion in general as you do. We like people who line up with us. So we tend to be kind to them. And we think that's the biblical idea of kindness. But remember Christ. We were not first kind to him so he saved us. That kind of kindness is no different than the unbeliever. You never have to darken a door of a church to know that kind of kindness. To figure out that if you want to have any relationship with the world, there's some people you're going to have to be kind to. A biblical kindness, however, a biblical tenderness, however, is striving to love people that you'd rather not love. Or don't, at first, seem easy to love. Can I ask all of us a question? When is the last time we in our lives have really dedicated ourselves to boldly go out of our way to love individuals for a long, sustained period of time who we struggle to love? I mean, honestly, this is one of the great things about Christian community. Being a member of a congregation, I think in part God intentionally wants us to put be put into a community with people we normally would never get along with. Or even want to get along with, and he says, All right, all right. Practice being kind to one another. Practice being tender towards one another. Because remember, I have first been kind and tender towards you. It's when church communities really go out of their way, outside of their comfort zones, and only order to boldly love those. We'd rather not engage with that. Amazing things can happen because we're fully dependent upon the power of God in those moments. If our kindness, if our tenderness only extends in the same kinds of way that extends into the world, the people who will like your post on Facebook, we're not going to be mirroring God's kind of kindness. God's kindness is long-suffering it's sustained over a period of time in order to break down dividing walls of hostility. And so if God had to go to such trouble for us, The degree of kindness isn't going to be accomplished in a snap of the fingers or by letting someone make a left turn before you go on ahead on the road. It needs to be sustained, intentional, and one that remembers all along the way the heavenly vista that we are all perched on to look out. Really, you just need a crockpot type of love for one another, and I do too. What do I mean by that? Well, crock pots are the ultimate tool of breaking down the toughest piece of meats. You know, the really cheap meats that we get at the market. Again, carrots or vegetables or something. But, you know, crock pots do that, and they do that by a sustained warmth upon that which was tough. And it creates something entirely different than when it first came out. In this digital day and age, where we make rash judgments on over individuals in milliseconds, in an overly sensitive, overly disconnected world that we kind of live in at the moment, kind of being uh, an understatement, where it's tough to be loved and tough to receive sustained kindness from people uh, in the public square. Oh, what power the Christian community could have in times such like this, mirroring the sustained kindness of our Savior. If we got up on that heavenly perch that, and, the, and stood upon the good news of the Gospel and assessed the location of which we now live in in this world in this day and age, and have the courage to love tough people for a sustained period of time, what tenderness might break out both in them and us? By the way, this does not mean that there aren't some rocks in the world. If I get a piece of granite and go put it in that same crock pot, it's not gonna soften. However, even in those instances, what a joy it would be able to say to our be, to be able to say to our Lord, Lord, I still try. Because I know I had a heart of stone at first before I knew you, and through your power you tenderized me. Let us see the wisdom of tenderness, of kindness, of remembering the fact that we have been saved by God's grace through faith. Again, this this call to tenderness, it's not a promise here that God in preparing works for us is always going to have the same result. But even if such love does not succeed, it won't be our failure. God has prepared moments for us, however, to walk in. So let us walk in. So is there someone that God continues to put on your heart? Maybe you'd love to see them know the Lord more than anything else. And yet, you've long grown cold in trying to tenderize them through, through a sustained period of love. For some of you, being honest, you're, you're probably not even considering such things because uh, you really haven't made doing the works of that Christ has prepared for you, the ultimate priority in your life. The fact is all of us have to be well acquainted with the tender and gracious recipe Jesus used in order to save both you and I to, to be able ready to hand it to others. Let me explain. I love to eat paella, Spanish paella, the real stuff, rice, seafood, peppers, it's fantastic, and every time I eat it, I love it. There's a Spanish family. I've really only had one paella I like. It's a sp- Spanish family in San Diego who's made it for my family. I loved it so much. I wanted it to be my, my wedding dish. My mom said, absolutely not. It's, it's too, like, I don't know, low grade or whatever. She didn't like the idea of like, buffet style seating. She wanted Regardless, it's a delicious dinner. It is, I would eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I really would. It's so good. But I digress. I bring up paella because if I really wanted to learn to pass on that paella recipe, I have no idea how to pass it on. I don't really, I haven't enmeshed myself with those who know the recipe so that I can start passing it on to others. I would have to fly into Vauxhall this family, in order for you to all experience it. How does this relate to Christ and what I just said? If you really love Jesus, Jesus has prepared moments in your life where you are to share Him with others. And so how well acquainted are you? How well are you seated on the perch with the salvation He's given you in sharing Him with others? Are you even seeking to share? How much do you like this recipe, salvation? It's one thing to say you like something or love something, But to truly love it is to share it with others, to pass it on to others. Those are the good works he has prepared for us. Works where we tenderize. We strive to have sustained portions of love towards somebody, soften them towards the gospel. And and the reality is, too many of us were just disinterested with the type of investment that kind of walk in Christianity requires. I've had a moment in my life that, and few of you have heard this illustration recently, because it's it's been coming back to my mind quite a bit recently. See, when I grew up, I loved tennis. I never, I played it a little bit. I was never great at it, but I loved watching tennis. I loved watching mac and Rum. I loved watching Pete Sampras and Agassi later on. I, I really Agassi though was my favorite. He was my favorite because he didn't have the blazing serve, but he knew how to kind of. He was kind of the David versus Goliath. He could he could always return. When we moved to Las Vegas, Las Vegas is very much the city of Las, of Andre Agassi, and he runs this little foundation, and the foundation is. He sends out his former tennis coaches, and they start teaching kids, and they teach them at just a very discounted rate. And so we used to we signed up our children, and we they used to partake in this. Now then, it happened one day after tennis lessons. Agassi's former coach came up to us and said, "One of your daughters has the potential, at least college." She really has the potential to do incredible things in tennis, and, and and part of our program is to identify children with this kind of potential and to basically offer them the ability to reach it. So my wife and I basically said, well, what does it look like, and it was what you expect. Weekdays, practicing, weekends, and tournaments, most tournaments in Los Angeles. And and other places throughout this, Southern California. And we said thank you, and we were honored. And we got in the car, and we, even though we lived close to the tennis courts, before we ever entered the door, we knew our answer. The most important perch that I have in my life, my wife has in her life, is our heavenly perch. That's the most important perch that we have to share with our children, with others. It's the best of us. It's not hitting a tennis ball. And while it would have been great to sit in an arena and you know sit in a tennis court and, and watch one of my daughters absolutely crush other opponents and these sorts of things, how fun that would have been. It would have taken away from a more important priority it would have taken away from work set and decisions that Christ had set before us before the foundation of the world, so that we might walk in accordance and, and holiness with. It. It's, not, it's not important that one of my daughters won't be one of the, a, a great tennis ball hitter. That matters nothing in 100 years. But it does matter if she invests. And learning more about the tenderness, the kindness of our good Lord and Savior. Let us be people that remember the kindness and the tenderness of our good Lord and Savior. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, in Christ before us you have eternity. You have forever. Forever. Help us to be less focused on this life. Help us to be, stop being so consumed with earthly mindedness. Help us to look out upon the heavenly vista in which You've already prepared and already set us upon it in heaven, through the work of Jesus Christ. Help it to change how we view the world, how we change, help us to change our decisions we make, the people we love, and how we love them. Help us to remember that we once were hardened to Your Word, and yet You were still kind and tender to us. Lord, we're so prone to wander. We're so prone to forget. We're so prone to ignore the perch which you have prepared for us. Please, Lord, help us to have a greater union with you through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.